Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Kern. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's a Monday morning edition, and oh, wow, here we are. I, I'm a little overwhelmed because not only do, am I sitting across from Father Jeff Lewis, the pastor of St. Mary's in Spokane Valley, but Father Nagel is in the house as well, all the way back in Kirkland, Washington at the main Sacred Heart Radio studio. Father Nagel the Mothership. The, the Mothership, <laughs> yes. More affectionately known as the Mothership. Uh, and he is the pastor of St. Monica's in Mercer Island and Sacred Heart in Bellevue. Welcome to the program, Fathers. Good to be Thank back. You. Yeah, good to be back. That's a great way of saying it. It's yeah. been a while. Well, we've had we've covered so many feasts since we've been on together that I had to cherry pick one that I thought would be of most interest and a great blessing to folks that are listening. And so I'll tell you which one that is in just a minute. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out, drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel is going to lead us in a scripture reading and a prayer. This is from uh, the beginning of, uh, actually verse 1, from chapter 47 of Ezekiel. Then he brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water flowing out from beneath the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the facade of the temple was towards the east. Gracious God, we ask your blessings upon us um, as we gather today, gather today for those who are listening that we might be aware of the way in which uh, your temples are life-giving to us. They, they, they give us the sacraments, the flow of the sacraments, the grace that, that comes from you. May we be receptive of that um, in these great, in your houses, uh, wherever we tend to worship, uh, wherever we go on pilgrimage, let us be reverent and fed, nourished, watered by your grace. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you. All right. So here we are. Good fathers. We have good fathers. Holy fathers. Well, neither of you are the holy father, but you're holy fathers. <laughs> um, it's been a while. And so there are all these feasts coming by. And I was like, you know what? The dedication of St. John Lateran. What an interesting thing to have on a calendar, yeah. uh, on the calendar of feasts. Is there any other dedications? I'm looking at Father Lewis. All of a sudden, he just turned white. <laughs> He's like, uh-oh, this is what happens when we're on the radio again. Put him on the spot. Uh, do you know any other dedication that happens, uh, a feast day that is on the church's calendar? For churches? Yes. So actually this, uh, well, we're broadcasting on Monday, this past Saturday, November 18th, is the dedication of the basilicas of Peter and Paul in Rome. Mm. And in August, I think it's August 5th, there's the dedication of St. Mary Major in Rome. So the four papal major basilicas. Yeah. You are flexing, Father. <laughs> Father wow. Lewis, I love I'm that. Impressed. Did you know that, Father Nagel? Uh, I did. Yeah. <laughs> but not right. not the actual date of Peter's Paul and um I mean I mean I I, I may have missed the dates but I I didn't yeah. know that the four major basilicas were were celebrated. I I I would not have been able to to lock that down. I I knew of St. Mary Major but I wasn't I wasn't clear about the other ones. So. I I probably only knew that cuz we have a, a little parish um um event coming up well on Saturday and 
I was looking ahead to the readings, like, what should I preach for the opening mass? You shouldn't have said that. You should have just said, you know, in my <laughs> I have it all very memorized. holy history, I, of course, studied this, and I yes. get it all. Yes. <laughs> all right, so, okay, now I'm going to push you back on the spot here. Father Nagel will rescue you. Okay. okay. So what was the significant happening on the on the actual day of the dedication of St. Mary Major that was so striking and out of uh, out of the normal expectation for the but that particular moment in the year? So keep in mind, it was early August. There was a, a notable snowfall that day, I think, right? right. And it was just, I think it was just after the declaration of Mary as Mother of God, I think at the Council of Nicaea. So it was like God confirming this dogma of Mary uh, being proclaimed by the church. Is that true, Father Nagel? Our Lady of the Snows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that something? Yeah. yeah. I, just, I, I just love those kind of things. Like when yeah. people... Say, where's the evidence of God or something supernatural happening that you could say a natural phenomenon that cannot be explained? And the most reasonable explanation is the one that the people who underwent it would put forward for it, which is this is an act of God. Yeah. And, and, and there's a way in which people will just say, I would rather cling to my belief that this was not God and is an unknown scientific phenomenon than to say the people who believe and say it is a faith-based phenomenon in, in God, that, that that, in fact, is uh, a better explanation, a more reasonable explanation. Yeah. Does that make sense to you, Father Lewis? It does, yeah. And it, you know, I was thinking of also the miracle of the sun at Fatima. I mean, you can get the skeptical scientists saying, well, it's because this, that, or the other thing all happened to line up. And then my response is, well, yeah, and it happened to line up on the day and at the hour that the children predicted it was going to happen. Right. And, you know, children, mind you, you know, you know, maybe there is a natural explanation. That doesn't mean that God didn't have a hand in it. God frequently uses natural means to perfect the supernatural end. That's good. Yeah, how do you explain the the, the clothes that were drenched wet all of a sudden being all dry? Exactly, yeah. How, how do you explain that? So, Father Nick, what about you? Just to, and well, this is, by the way, this is going somewhere. This is, as you all know, this always goes somewhere. Our so, meandering ahead, conversations do reach the sea. Um, <laughs> I, I do think that you know, sometimes people put this materialism versus uh, Christianity or other religions as faith versus reason. But I think uh, there's an element of faith, so to speak, in the materialist as well. If they say, you know, oh, no, I'm not going to buy this. I, I, yeah, that's just coincidence. That's. And so there's a, I think materialists, that's a faith as well, um, at least sometimes in terms of their, their own, there's a need there and there's a, there's a belief there that it may not just be a matter of reason. There's a, a stubbornness of holding on to something for reasons out, you know, for causes outside of reason. So I, again, I, I would say the, the people who deny the, the you know, miracle of the dancing sun at, a, at a Lourdes, for instance, um, I mean Fatima. Um, that that's that's a faith-based decision. That it's by that. I don't mean a faith by religious, but it's it's something. It's an ide- ideology they're holding on to that's not purely from reason. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a form of pride, right? right. So it's clinging to one's own position rather right. than having any sense of openness to um, something from the outside shifting that. Thank God I'm not stubborn, or right. <laughs> I don't cling to my own positions. So this is good. So, uh, what does this have to do with our life of faith? Well, in our in our life of faith, there are many objects, locations. There are many realities, not just natural, but artificial, meaning that they're made with the with the help of human hands. And is God involved in that? Is somehow God at work in that? Is 
is God working through that? And the great gift of our Catholic faith is that we have this principle of sacramentalism or yeah, the, the principle of the incarnation. And you're nodding, Father Nagel. You're not nodding. Uh, I'm not Father Nagel. Father Lewis, you're nodding. And so uh, when I say that, what am I, what, what am I referring to? This idea of this, this sacramental dimension. Not the seven sacraments, but sacramentalism as a principle or incarnational principle. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it connects to our faith. Well, you know, it means that, you know, God has willed to give human beings five physical senses and through the means and the use of those senses to encounter something of the divine. So it is perfectly not just legitimate, but praiseworthy to to employ those as a as a way of getting closer to God. So, you know, to have stripped and barren churches is one thing. Yeah, okay, there could be distractions, but if you augment the beauty of a church with stained glass windows, mosaics, things like this, they can instruct us and inform us about the faith in a way that draws us closer to the Lord. So through the means and the use of our senses, in all of them, the smells and bells, as they say, we hear the bells ring, we smell the incense, we taste and see that the Lord is good when we receive Holy Communion. All the senses are engaged. And when when focused on why they're being engaged, that all of this is to draw us closer to God, then it really enhances and enriches our faith. Father Nagel, do you want to build on that at all? Well, I, I I agree that the whole idea of the senses is the, is the means by which we know, and I I just think that beauty you know one of the great transcendentals beauty is definitely a legitimate real way in which we come to know and and know God. There's an probably about a month ago at St Monica's there's bells uh, that ring ten minutes before the uh, the mass is going to begin, and there's a it's out there once. Sunday morning, probably a little bit before nine o'clock mass, and there's this woman walking by on the street, and she was just on, on going for a walk, and then she, I was out there on the, greeting people as they came in, and she came up to me, she just walked over to me and said, you know, I just thank you for the bells. This is, you know, I just really appreciate those. I said, I'm not Catholic. I don't, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm, I, don't, I think she said, I, I, I don't know. If she said I'm not religious, but not Catholic, but I do appreciate them. And I was just thinking about the attraction there, and I think it probably it probably draws from all sorts of cultural uh, stimuli or memories, you know, of bells on Sunday mornings and the beauty of that sound. But I just thought that was a little incident uh, or example of how people can be attracted to beauty. Yeah, I love this. So let's now translate this into formation and faith, catechesis, the process of um, becoming and, and growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ. In the, the flow of, of church history, we have different um, degrees of education among those who believe. And so the church, in her genius, as established by Christ, wa- uh, sought out ways to form the faith of those who were followers of Christ. And not, I don't know, I, Father Nagel, maybe you know the percentages, like what was the percentage of folks at that time who were educated enough to read? The, either Latin or their own. You mean you know, in terms of Middle own, Ages or the early church? Yeah, the church? Middle Ages, or even just like in the flow of history. And then how were churches used as part of this whole work of catechizing, evangelizing, forming faith? Well, before the, the printing press, you, you had almost no books. I mean, it, it, the number that people could read outside the clergy was very small from the, um, you know, again, until the early modern period. There might be one or two books in the whole village, and they were in the church. The missal, and you know, that was probably it. 
And so the idea of not only reading, but again, the idea of what did I see in front of me in the church? Um, how was the church built and structured? How was it laid out? Even that, not just simply the mosaics or the icons or the statues, but um, just the physical interior of the church or the exterior. Um, this is what people could learn by because, again, this was a, mostly a non-literate society, which doesn't mean that they weren't intelligent. Just, and it also means that they weren't. It doesn't mean they weren't sensitive to the truth, but it had to come to them in sort of a non-literary way. So, I, what I'd love to do is um, draw upon your lived experiences, fathers, and talk about the way in which art and architecture. Let's even just say architecture around churches have impacted your life, either as a, as a work of evangelization or a work of formation, of catechesis. Uh, I'll start with one super quick story about my dad, right? So my dad, uh, he, he died uh, back on September 29th. And in the months before, we were talking about, you know, his whole life. And one of the things he said about his life of faith, he was, he was in construction, right? So he would build buildings. And his faith, he said, one of the things that impacted him was when he experienced his conversion as an adult, he would go up the stairs to the church and there enter the church and he would just fall down to the ground and kneel and pray. And, and he said to me, he said, it was so obvious that it was appropriate that before you entered a church, you didn't just enter at ground level, that you actually walked upstairs and that the action that was occurring in the church happened at a higher level as a reminder to me that I was entering into a higher level of my own existence when I entered a church. And I'm like, who are you? <laughs> like, I, just, I got a PhD in theology, and I never thought of that. Yeah. I never was taught that. I never heard that. But for my dad, a, a you know contractor and a builder, for him, it was this obvious connecting point that... The way the church was physically structured so that you walk up steps to enter the place of the event of the liturgy, that that was teaching you something. It was conveying something to you if you had the sensitivity to appreciate it. And I got to tell you, I just do not forget that every time I'm walking up all those steps at Our Lady of Lords Cathedral. Mm -hmm. It's like, why in the world would this cathedral be so high above ground level and you're walking up 20 steps? to enter the front door. Uh, that, that just is very powerful to me. Yeah. And, you know, contrasted against that are some of our more modern churches. How are they designed? They're not in the cruciform. They're in like... What the, does that mean? You used a big word. I oh, mean, sorry. Follow. What does that mean? Cross-shaped. We're all in the in the same nave facing forward with, with pews in the sides that sometimes face in or face forward. But if you were to look at the church from above, it's in the form of a cross. And that teaches you something just in the structure of the church. And what well, does it teach you? It teaches us that cross is central to our faith. And that when we all face the same direction, um, we're all worshiping together. And it's, it's, it's not uh, community aspect is, is important, but it's the fact that we're all worshiping God. And so we're all facing where God is, the tabernacle. That's like older churches. You know, some of our modern churches, um, you know, my church at St. Mary's in the half moon, it's a very half circle church and it's... Um, and instead of going up, you go in, and then it actually kind of ramps down. What does that communicate? The physical structure communicates that this is a stage, this is a performance, we're all the audience. I mean, this is, people wouldn't consciously vocalize that, but, you know, there's a kind of this principle in, in marketing that they say sometimes, you know, the medium is the message. 
what is your medium with which you're trying to communicate your message that itself is conveying a message. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a lament of some of the modern churches that it's, you know, it's affected how we approach our worship that now it is the primarily about the community and secondarily about the worship. So it's like my task is like, you know, doubled for me because I have to try to communicate and preaching, you know, against that. We're primarily here to offer the sacrifice and to worship God. So I, um, anyway, no, I about that point about the interior of the churches. Um, I've I've seen other churches uh, as well that are sort of um, they're like an amphitheater. There you go down. It's, it's like you're going to a, a basketball court or a stadium or a, a theater, and I think. One of the things that's lost, you're right. You're looking down on you're looking down on on Christ, as opposed to if you had usually traditionally you go up this not just to get into the church, but the sanctuary is up steps, and so you know you have this is Mount this is Mount Sinai and it becomes the hill of Calvary, and so this idea that I'm looking up at what's going on, uh, that's my natural position as a disciple. And so I, I do think there's something, you're right, it's not even conscious, it's, it's very subconscious almost, I think, in terms of the effect or the impact that would have. But um, I, I would never design a church where you're, you're walking down towards the sanctuary. Well, and uh, one last comment on this, and then we'll, we'll take, actually, you know what, let's take a break. And then when we come back, I, I want to continue to just focus on the sanctuary itself. Uh, and I'll talk about it as a layperson, and then to hear your experience as priests. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father Jeff Lewis and Father Kurt Nagel, and we'll be back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com. drtomcurran.com. Welcome back to the program. Today on Sound Insight, we're talking about the way in which the very structure of a church and church is not only catechized, but actually have impacted our own lives. And so Father Nagel and Father Lewis are here with me today, and uh, we're exploring that. So where we left off was the the shape of the church traditionally is in the form of the cross, and the cross is central in our life of faith, and somehow we touch the reality of Jesus Christ's passion, death, and resurrection there at Mass and the event that occurs in that space. But both you fathers were referring to the special set-apart space, even within the set-apart space, which is the sanctuary. And I can remember how, uh, you know, it's like, who gets to access that sacred space? And there used to be, what, the uh, communion rail and a gate, mm -hmm. right? So there would be a gate that would be opened, and then priests would be able to enter, and the priests were the ones who were vested to be able to properly perform and be properly dressed for the action that was occurring there, I, I remember hearing, uh, and this obviously this is this was happening at a traditional Latin mass where the priest was saying, when you come forward to receive Holy Communion, the priest stays in the sanctuary, which is the place of like heaven breaking in, and you are approaching the sanctuary, this place of heaven, but you kneel, and then the priest reaches across, across that threshold to present you with Holy Communion. 
It's like heaven coming to earth across that threshold. Again, it's one of those things where if the only thing we did is just sort of go through it and not reflect on it, it still has an effect. It's still washing over us. It's still sowing something into us. But when it gets explained, all of a sudden, wow, that really impacts the consciousness I have and the attitude I have, and therefore also the behavior that I will, uh, the action that I'll undertake when I'm coming forward to receive Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of my my sense of entering into a, a holy space that has a sanctuary, another space set apart. And then even in that, there's some more steps that mm-hmm. go to that the highest of the space where, where the altar is. So you're nodding, Father uh, Father Lewis. What are, you, <laughs> what are you thinking? I was thinking you mentioned the altar rail in, um, in Latin Rite Mass churches. And then there's, um, it's even more... Um, kind of um, obvious, not subtle at all, in like uh, Eastern tradition churches. And it's not an altar rail, it's the alconostasis. I think I'm pronouncing that right, alconostasis, which is a kind of a big fence as tall as a human with icons of the saints and Our Lady and Our Lord uh, on the face of it. And um, there's some folks I know there are in some prayer groups I, I have at the parish that, but they're actually members of our Byzantine Catholic Church here in the Valley. And they explain what that means, what that's conveying is that it is through the intercession of Mother Mary and the saints, it is through the uh, merits and graces of Jesus Christ that that we enter into heaven. So you're faced with these saints that are praying for you. And then at the fullness of time for us, we'll pass through with their help of their intercession into the Holy of Holies of heaven. And um, But, you know, the priest comes through the iconostasis, I think, or, or maybe there's gaps where people can come and receive. I'm, I've never been to a mass like that, so I don't know, but... But a similar principle that there's a separation, a physical separation to indicate that this is this is representative here on earth of heaven, this is representative here on earth of earth, and Christ passes through to be given to us. Yeah, I, I would say even on the, in the Western Church, I, uh, yes, kind of stasis is there, and, and, the, and the priest does come out through the, the great doors there to, to distribute communion, but there's a, the, the altar, the, the rood screen um, in the medieval church that was... It was a kind of a it was a big fence or wall that you could see through in some places because it was kind of it was kind of like a fence. There, there would be a cross on the top of it, the crucifix, where they show again the idea that 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 um, that separation. The cross is the one that right uh, Jesus' death on the cross is something that it surmounts that is the the way in which you can go you know one side and the other and and what what connects the two is the cross. And I was just thinking about that, that that sense of the the reality and the definite space of heaven, and the idea of you know that's what's happening in there. The court of heaven is there, and I, I do think that there's something that's sort of awe, literally awe-inspiring about that. And, and for modern sensibility, it seems like it's it's exclusive that you're you're cutting people off from it. But it really, I think it is more the sense of, no, we're, we're designating what's really happening and, and the supernatural reality here. And so, you know, again, I think that um, that's a challenge for some modern perceptions, but I do think there's something powerful in to recognize and, and catechetical in the idea of what's happening at the Eucharist is heaven and heaven coming on earth and coming down and appearing there. So, uh, again, the transcendental this transcendent nature of the liturgies emphasized there. So last comment uh, I'll have you make, Father Nagel, and then we'll move forward because I want to hear about your experiences of churches that have had a major impact on your life. 
And what you were talking about, Father, made me think about um, having attended Mass at cloistered convents and how the religious sisters, mm -hmm. uh, the nuns, are they're they're veiled literally right. like they're they're enclosed that we're not vis they're not visible to us they're behind that screen and at a certain point in the mass the screen is removed like it's moved back so they can see the action and what one of the striking moments is when the priest distributes holy communion he'll first go over to distribute communion to the the sisters and what they do is they actually put a uh, an acolyte, uh, an altar server, to block the view of the priest giving Holy Communion one at a time to the sisters that are cloistered. And it again, it's so evocative, this idea that the holy moment of encounter that's happening when this sister, this one who has been removed from view, and held in reserve for the Lord, this is a holy moment that must be um, obscured. It, it's something that ought to be veiled from the, the wider world because there's this meeting that's occurring between the bridegroom and the bride in the reception of Holy Communion. Now, that's like really powerful. Or, you know what? Oh, it's just a practical matter, right? No, but if, if you have eyes to see, it could be incredibly powerful. So, Father Nagel, you at, at, at one point were discerning a vocation with the Carthusians and that whole idea of being set apart, being held in reserve, being removed from uh, uh, the the day-to-day -day access of the world. D does any of that strike home for you? You know, it's interesting. There's two, two things. Um, in terms of the Carthusians themselves, they're so <laughs> they're already so cloistered that their actual liturgy, the only people there are them. Um, and but they do they do have a, they have their own right. Uh, there's a Carthusian rite, so they don't have the Roman rite, they, they don't have the Byzantine rite, they have the Carthusian rite, in which, during rather than kneel, they prostrate during the consecration. Really? Wow. Yeah. And and so in the priest uh, is not in an Oron's position, but in crucifix forms, He's, he puts his arms straight out during wow. the Eucharistic prayer. So Are I mean, you giving it's, away secrets, Father Nagel. Like no, the, you could you could read about those. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding, Father. I'm kidding. But <laughs> but it, it struck me as like, well, that was a you know. That as a liturgy had its own teaching in terms of how it went. Now, yes, they're definitely cloistered. You know, your family could come t two days a year if they wanted to travel to Vermont. But I was thinking about the Carmelites. So I was, I was, uh, I've offered mass at the Carmelite uh, monastery here in Seattle, and you know, it, everything you just said is true in the sense of. They they have their own chapel. You can't see them from the where the the ladies have the their position in the chapel. It's at right angles. It's kind of, again, the cruciform uh, is part of the chapel, so you can't actually see. You can hear them sing, um, but you can't actually see them. And then during the communion, they do move aside this the barrier a little bit. Now I have to admit. You must be at a little more strict uh, monastery because they do not have an acolyte blocking them. In fact, I can see why they might because that's the one time in the mass everybody's looking over there. Who's yeah, who's there? Right. I, I, I want to look. I, I want to like, see if I can get an angle to kind of. see. Can I see the know? sister? You know, I yeah. heard of him. Who now? Who is that? And so, yeah, I can see why they do it. But th that particular time at that particular monastery, they did not have that block. And, and, and it was maybe I don't know if it's distracting to them or not, but. Um, it definitely drew the eyes to people saying, oh, let's, it's just, just worldly curiosity, you know? Oh, who's that over there? So anyway, that has been my experience. But 
that would be a powerful thing to say, you know, we're going to, this is not something that we're just going to parade around and show. So uh, beautiful. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Father Nagel. So Father Lewis, I'm going to ask uh, again, the two of you, um, what would be uh, a place, a holy place, a, a chapel, a church that was like, meaningful or significant in your own conversion? Like it was a place uh, where you were evangelized or a place where there was this aha, new insight into the faith that was like catechetical for you. And it could have been, again, a painting or a, some, some of the art or architecture of the church itself. Um, what would be, a, what would be a, one of those holy places for you, Father Lewis? And then you, Father Nagel. Um, well, I got several of those. I'm going to focus on one, though. It's, it's one that maybe no one's uh, heard of. We've heard of the Basilica of, of St. Francis in Assisi itself. But when you're there and you're doing the, the tour and you're maybe there for a mass down at the tomb of St. Francis, but along the way in, in one of the, um, one of the um, uh, bigger rooms on the upper church, um, there's some side chapels. And I went into the side chapel, first of all, to get away from the crowds. And I went in there uh, also to, to pray a bit on my first pilgrimage. This was after I was ordained, but before I began my first assignment. And I had a, a yearning to draw closer. The whole trip was really to um, hopefully grow my devotion to Mother Mary. And, um, and I was there after, after we had been to Lourdes. So that was what I went into the Lord's water to pray about, which, you know, that can, we can talk more about that in a broadcast. But um, you go into the Lord's water with a prayer intention, usually for healing. But I asked to have a stronger devotion to Mother Mary. And uh, from that point forward, for the rest of this pilgrimage, it was always a sense of like through Mary to Jesus. And then now we're in Assisi on our way back to Rome. And I went to the side chapel and the way the light caught this one statue in this chapel that was otherwise very dark and not really, um, it wasn't adorned with much, but it had one statue and it was the statue of the Sacred Heart. And the light coming on the statue was on Jesus's face and then on where his hands were gesturing to a Sacred Heart. And I was definitely called to mind a passage from Lamentation, see if there's any suffering like my suffering. And so that began a whole devotion through Mary to the Sacred Heart of Jesus for me. My first assignment as pastor, one of my three parishes was named Sacred Heart. And then I realized I was born in Sacred Heart Hospital. And my first day working as a priest was July 1st of 2011, which that particular year was the Solemnity of the Sacred Heart. And so it all seemed to come together. And so that inspired a devotion in me that you know, in terms of growing catechesis, well, that always seemed like a weird, you know, a bodily organ devotion to Jesus. So I'm going to have to explore more about, you know, learn more about this. And so it led to a, learn, a yearning to learn more about that and to grow in my catechetical knowledge of that devotion. And all in this very unadorned chapel in Assisi. Nice. That's really beautiful, Father. Thank you. Father Nagel. Yeah, there are a lot of, I suppose, a lot of churches and chapels that have had, that I've, interacted with that I've celebrated at. That I've, um, but I, I, one thing that leaped to mind when you mentioned this, uh, this question, it was a chapel at Mundelein Seminary where I studied for the priesthood. And the seminary is a large seminary and there's multiple chapels, including a large, beautiful, the main chapel, you know, it's beautiful. Um, but one of the chapels, probably the least visited, is called the Jesuit Chapel. In, in pre-Vatican II days, the, uh, the, uh, faculty were mostly Jesuits. And so this was the chapel for the faculty. It's often one sort of the one extreme of the, the fringe of the, of the campus in, in terms of uh, the layout of it all. But it's quiet. It's not particularly beautiful in the sense of um, architecture, really. It's probably built in the 40s or something. And it had stained glass windows of, of, of uh, Jesuit saints 
around. So, so it had, you know, it, it was, it felt churchy, but that's where I, that's where I learned to pray. And that's where I, that's the deep experiences in prayer there in the last couple of years of my seminary. But what struck me, I guess what I'm, the point I would, that sticks with me is because there's a little ch- chair right in front of the tabernacle that I could sit on and pray at. But what struck me is the smell of, it was, so I'm just talking about the smell of the chapel. And I think I could still recognize that smell and just in terms of, of the incense or the candles burnt or the, it's, maybe it's some of it's just old and musty because nobody went in there. I don't know, but it had its own, its own smell that that was, that was something for me in terms of, um, of the place. It was a place of prayer and that was one of its signatures for me. And I don't know, it's just, it, it's the place where I pray is this is, you know, it, it drew me. So I, I was attracted to that spot. And, and so that may not sound, may not sound completely rational, but I, I do think that I associate that with growth in prayer and connection with Christ in the Eucharist. And, and again, with that space and with that, the smell of the, the, of the chapel, that holy place. That's really powerful, Father Nagel. Uh, and it actually leads me to uh, another question now. We're up against a break, but when we come back, I'm going to talk about not so much a particular like uh, structure, like the, the architecture or the way that um, both of you are mentioning that space, but something different uh, about a holy atmosphere. And we'll talk about that in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. I am with Father Jeff Lewis and Father Kurt Nagel. We're talking about the way in which God communicates to us through the church and specifically through church buildings, church architecture, church art, holy places. And I want to shift now from the concept of a holy place to the idea, and I want to pressure test this with you fathers, the idea of holy people praying even for centuries in a particular place. It may not be that um, spectacular from a human standpoint, from an architectural artistic standpoint, but the reality of when you walk into the space, when you, when you enter that space and when you sit to pray, you get this sense of, all right, I, I feel the presence of God. I feel this sense of God's presence that's palpable. It is somehow richer or more profound. It is, it is something that says, Saints must have prayed in this space because the the God is just so much more powerfully present here than in the church down the street or the more beautiful one over over there. And so, for me, it was the Jesu in Rome. It, it's one of the primary Jesuit churches in Rome. And going in there, it wasn't the most beautiful church. It was lovely. But going in there, it it wasn't just like a historical thinking, oh, all the Jesuit saints that happened to pray in this space. No, there was just this palpable sense that God was here. And uh, the only thing that I could think of that distinguished it from these other churches that were maybe even more magnificent and beautiful was just this palpable sense of God's holy presence that for me, I, I point to holy people have prayed here. Mm-hmm. Is that is that theory... Uh, far-fetched or does that strike you as as uh, yes I have that same sense Um, I I have that same sense and part of that uh, for me is when I 
when I connect, you know, usually I feel that definitely in, when in older churches that have just a longer lifespan and and therefore have a longer chance for saints and people and for and for God to interact with all of them in that space and and so the palpable sense of the divine you know is is um, accentuated for me when i when i have a sense of the gravity of the historicity of this place that this is a historical place it's very old and lots of people have come through here and for very holy purposes and all of that you know i'll go back to assisi there's people will know the three big churches in assisi st francis st clair and then and then the cathedral which is um oh just the name of it skips me now um uh, but in any event, um, there's several other churches, and one of them I discovered by accident, and I don't know how frequently it's it's uh, found by tourists, but you got to go down these narrow kind of side streets to get there, and it's named after St. Stephen the Martyr. And every time I've gone to Assisi, I've been there three times now, I'll specifically look for this place. And it's, again, it's quiet. It's clearly old. It's not like it's in, um, it's in disrepair, but it's also not been built up and perfected and beautified. Like, you can see the the grout between the bricks holding the thing. I was kind of chipping away. But then you step in there. There's nothing beautiful about it except that it's old, except that Jesus is there because there's the red lamp, there's the tabernacle. And maybe the priest is doing his round. So it's like a parish church in this town of Assisi, and it's just open for whoever wants to come in. And um, and I'll be in there praying and just feeling the weight of like, this is a town that is, you know, a thousand years old or older, and uh, since St. Francis from the 1200s has has been here, you know, as a Catholic church or even older than him, and just the normal daily living and striving for normal daily holiness of the people of Assisi coming and going out of that church, that's what, that's what hit me, that who knows if any of the saints have ever been there, saints that we know about, the canonized saints, but who knows but that every person's ever been there has been touched by God and and strengthened in their journey to sainthood. And a lot of that was because, again, it's an old church, it looks old, and so the, the historical significance and the weight of that was hitting me, as well as the palpable sense of the divine. You know, I, 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 first off, I, I think that you're, you're onto something there, Tom, in terms of the atmosphere. You know, if, if incense can linger and permeate into walls and the, you know, beeswax can, uh, why not prayer? You know, the idea of, we, we sometimes talk about haunted spaces. Uh, why can't there be holy spaces similarly as well, the, where the spiritual reality is, lingers and, and is, it sort of permeates the area? I, I have a personal um, story, but I, I, I remember reading, um, this is, wasn't me, but if any of you remember, maybe Tom does, you're too young, uh, Father Lewis, but the, Kenneth Clark was this English history, uh, great art historian, and he had this, he had this famous uh, show called The Civilization back in the 70s. Anyway, he, in his, his autobiography, he, again, very sophisticated uh, artistically, you know, again, just a wonderful guy in terms of trying to sh talk about Western civilization and all the travelings he did. He said, and he wasn't, he wasn't religious until the very end. He was a Catholic convert on his deathbed. So he converted to Catholicism at the very end. But he said, you know, traveling around, he noticed, and he was talking in spiritual realities like this. He said he felt a place that was really evil. He, didn't, he just walked in there and he said, Something's, something, this is bad, was Mycenae in, in, in Greece, the, the, the ruins of where Agamemnon was king. And he said, and if you read any of the, the, the Greek plays, you know, that was a pretty bloody place. He said, that just felt evil. 
But he said the other, the opposite was when he went to Iona, the Holy Isle, uh, just off the coast of Scotland, where so many Irish and Scottish saints had their monastery there. He said, and he wasn't religious this time, but when he went to that island, he said, there's a peace and a goodness here that just permeates. And he, so he just felt that. He just said, I, coming onto this island, um, there's something here. And I do think all the lives of those monks in, in the ruin, there's only ruins of that, of that monastery left. But I think that about that, personally, I think even in terms of my story of the Jesuit chapel, I think there was something about that. This was the chapel. Um, this is where the priests would go and offer their private masses uh, if they were still going to do that, usually with the seminaries too. There were some priests on the faculty, but every morning there would be masses there being said at different times, just quietly. And so I do think there was that, that idea of the perme- you know, permeating the, 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 whole, the whole place. Lastly, um, I, I also I had a little bit of that sense. This is a strange one in terms of the chapel at Broomtree Retreat Center for all places. Um, I did a 30-day retreat there, Ignatian Retreat, 19, uh, excuse me, 2018. And they have a chapel they moved from, there's a little country chapel, and they moved it from some place, some South Dakota town, and they put it, they just moved the whole church and they set it up as a chapel for there for the the retreat center and going in there along the wheat, I mean the cornfields, I, I felt something there too. I said, you know, there's something, it's kind of strange. Like I don't have a great explanation for it, but just simply thinking um, there's a holiness to this spot in this place. So those, those are kind of off the cuff examples for me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing them. Both of you uh, really powerful. Uh, let's make this now, concrete for folks that are listening. And so um, one of the practical ways to help grow in prayer day to day is creating a space for prayer in the home. And that idea of investing a particular space with a tradition, a history, a custom, a habit of praying in that space you're nodding your head vigorously here, Father. Do you support that idea? <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, I've preached on this uh, several occasions um, and counseled this in spiritual direction that you know, we hear the advice we should always try to find the same time to pray each day. Now, that may or may not be as possible as designating a, the same place to pray each day in the household. And a designated space, and even that can be difficult. So I've counseled folks, what if you found a kind of a designated corner in your room that when you're chair is oriented in this way, that's your prayer space now. And I've got that idea from a married couple I know that when they pray as a couple each day, they're, the two chairs that are kind of theirs in their sitting room, it's facing the couches and things for when they're entertaining guests, and the back is to um, like the fireplace or something, but then they turn the chairs around for their prayer because above the fireplace they got a, a crucifix, maybe like an icon of the Holy Family. And in that orientation, it immediately is inviting them to enter into the mindset of prayer. And I think that God in his holy wisdom, of course, designed us to be that way. We're creatures of habit so that instead of having to take 10 minutes to settle in because, you know, whatever, the distractions of the day, when we settle into a place that is used for only this purpose— at least for me anyway, I more quickly can get into that mindset of prayer. So instead of 10 minutes settling in, it's like 10 seconds and boom, away I go. And I've counseled this for other people to see if you can try to do that. And some people have said, yeah, I got a little table in the corner of my bedroom and I put the chair here and I got a, a, a crucifix or whatever. I light this candle. I, I pray this rosary and, and that's my, my prayer space. And then the rest of the day, it's just another corner in the room. But but people have taken it, have reported back to me that that has been effective for them when they designate the space. Hmm. 
I I would say, I have to confess, I I never did, really did that in terms of creating my own um, prayer corner or space. And I have to also that I've always been spoiled, you know, in a seminary or <laughs> the the rectory. I've always had a chapel right next door, the next room over, and so. I, you know, in my rectory, there's a chapel with the Blessed Sacrament. And I do, it, yeah, I go to the same space. I have the same chair, yeah, sure. Um, obviously, not everybody does that. But I do think, I, you know, I haven't really preached on what Father Lewis was just saying. You're right. Same time's important, but what about same place? Um, so I think that's a that's a good thing for me to remember. Because I, I imagine it would be effective, but I've, I've myself never really practiced that. So, and just to expand on that as a father... So I have a space. It's the left pillow on the couch in the living room, which is next to where our space where the icons are and the Bible and the Liturgy of the Hours and in over the place where we have the Sacred Heart and Immaculate Heart, the, the consecrated images, um, enthroned. Uh, it's also family prayer. So that's our space where we pray as a family. So, okay, okay, kids, we eat over here. We might watch a show over here. You're doing your homework over here. Okay, now time to pray. Oh, can we just pray here? No. Stand up, walk into the other room, take your seats, and we're going to pray in this space. So we're investing this one room, this like living room area, that is set apart for prayer. It, it, it's extremely valuable, mm. uh, That we, what we found. So, all right, we're up against our final break. And fathers, I'm going to move you out to the great cathedral of God's creation and ask how God communicates to you in the preferred way in what God has created. But we'll do that in just a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. So the great cathedral of creation, right? So now we're going to move away from man-made structures to God-made structures called creation. So there are I, I know lots of folks will have different preferences for where they encounter God, seashore looking out over the ocean, uh, up high on a mountain looking at a vista, uh, maybe in a beautiful gardens that are tended, and, and so you have the beauties of nature that way. Um, maybe it's under a night sky that's open and you can see the stars. All right, Father Nagel, we're going to start with you, putting you on the spot first, because Father Lewis was looking a little nervous. He was starting to sweat here, so... <laughs> Uh, with regards to creation as a place of whether it's, again, evangelizing or catechizing or expressing, worshiping, like a, a place of a, let's call it a natural liturgical way that you get close to God, where in nature, what kind of, uh, what kind of spot, what kind of place is most helpful in your own spiritual life? I don't know if this is going to fully satisfy your question, but I, I'm an, an early riser. I'm an early. I'm a morning person, and I like to pray early. And I all those things. I do like views and vistas, so as you said. Um, but what I really like to do, and I, I like to pray facing out a window and let it become day. Start in the dark, and then pray as it becomes as, as the sun. At least dawn starts up. Um, so from from dark to at least twilight dawn, if not full dawn, and I I really do like to you know uh, to look at the moon and the different phase, follow the moon and you know an early morning with a sliver of the moon there that's my perfect prayer encounter and experience. 
But really it is uh, looking out at a vista as the sun starts to make itself known. That would be, uh, that's, that's what I like to do. Even in, when I'm at home and in my chapel, um, I'll open the, the, the uh, drapes or the uh, blinds or whatever it is. And I start there in the dark and in my holy hour and end up in I, where I can see things and I see nature. So that would be kind of my natural sort of experience that's probably the uh, sweet spot, so to speak. I love that. that that's uh, I would never, never have thought of that. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, uh, yeah. Uh, did you notice, Father Lewis, he didn't say as the sun rises because he's in Seattle. So <laughs> As the light emerges. As the light emerges. As the I'm gray like, wow, lightens. That was, that, was, that was good. <laughs> I like, that was very protective of, of your people. That's very good. All right, Father Lewis, what about you? I know you enjoy outdoors. So Yeah, uh, especially in the spring and fall when the weather's good. It's not necessarily wet, but it's not too hot to go on a hike. I prefer hikes and then... I, I, you know, I, I will pray um, a rosary. Actually, it's long enough I can pray a couple of rosaries with intentions and as I'm hiking. So I feel like I'm doing something to, to deliberately make this into a sacred occasion, but also to not get lost in that. But, to, you know, there's sometimes where the trees are thus that they just, they're, they're spires and it calls to mind the high pillars of Gothic cathedrals and things like this. So, it, you know, my experience with the man-made nature um, you know, I, I call to mind those things and, and uh, realize, well, man is mimicking what God already did <laughs> in her in her, his man-made structures. There's one story, though, that, um, uh, that was very vivid for me, and I use this sometimes as an example to, if we're attentive, if we have eyes to he see and ears to hear, we can know that God is at work wherever we are. I was uh, <clears throat> taking a walk. This was in probably November before it started snowing. And it was at my previous parish at St. Peter on the South Hill in Spokane. So I went along this road that um, that runs along the this ridge and then down below is the valley of Lataw Creek. And um, and it was a cold day, and it was but I was kind of breezy. And then as soon as I started praying the third glorious mystery, like as soon as I started it, a gust of wind just started hitting me. And then it persisted throughout that decade. And I swear, like as soon as it ended it went away for precise. Now, why is that significant? Because the third glorious mystery is what? The descent of the Holy Spirit. And I was already in a mildly sour mood because I don't like walking when it's there's rain and all this other stuff. I'm getting wet. But I just had to laugh because I feel like I have a good relationship with God that if God's like, oh, he's having a bad day, let's make it worse. And so if I recognize that, then I'm going to kind of laugh with God. And, and I definitely felt like, you know, the Holy Spirit is here and is like playing with me. And that was, you know, just out on a walk on nature as I was praying my rosary. So that was a memorable moment. All right, quick question for both of you. Uh, one of the things I had planned for my kids this summer but did not execute was driving out away from city lights and getting under a dark night sky that is as expansive as possible to be able to see, like, the galaxies, not just seeing some stars. And the idea being that this would be an experience of awe or wonder uh, for, for my kiddos to help them realize how big God is, how transcendent God is. So I didn't, I didn't execute. So am I missing a lot by not having had that experience? Totally you are. Uh, when I was pastor up north in Chewila, where I lived in the little town of Valley, it was just a town of 50 people, not much in the way of city lights, and far enough away from Spokane that I don't have that light pollution. In the summers, there were many nights when I would just not even do anything deliberate to pray, but just lay out on the lawn and look at the stars. And you can see the Milky Way and 
things moving, shooting stars or satellites or whatever, it is uh, pretty impactful. And that's just here. Now, if you go to some places really dark, it's even better. I agree. I think yeah, yeah. You really weren't much of a father there, Tom. You let <laughs> you let him down, and I've now failed. you oh. failed him. And I was just Welcome I was going to back, Father Nagel. I was yeah. I was going to mention the Milky Way as well. I think lots of uh, people don't have never seen. They don't even know what that means. Um, the idea that there's something that's so distinctive about this this our own galaxy and this the billions of stars that make up the Milky Way. I think it'd be a great idea. Uh, I'm just joking about you know it'll, it'll still happen. I I think it's be a great field trip. Well, there is a uh, like a a vacation rental place that is tents. I think it's like tents or like yurts. Not full structures. Oh, yurts like a yurts. Yeah. And it's specifically geared to come on out. It's one of the best places for night star gazing in the country. Yeah. And it's yeah. It's I think it's in Utah. Okay. And so uh, or maybe Nevada. So one of the others, it was like, okay, it'll be like a 13-hour drive. Should we do this? Are we going to make this happen? And it, we didn't. So we sit on the back porch and look out in our yard. So, all right. So we have about just a minute and a half left. So fathers, what would you recommend for folks regarding encountering the Lord in the beauty of his creation? I would uh, just, um, if you're out in creation, remember that, you know, there's more going on out there, more ways that God wants to interact with us than just from what we can see, which is plenty. And that's our kind of primary sense. But, you know, be attentive to what you're listening to as well, what you're, what you're feeling, what you're, what you can smell out in nature. And how is this, or how can you let it be a, a, a sacramental sign of the presence of God in your life? And it's, you're, it, for me, that just expands the horizon of my engagement in reality and through the sacramental view, worldview of God is here too. All the senses are engaged. I would just say go for a walk. Um, but take your time. Go to a green belt or if you're in the suburbs, go out someplace where there's, you know, there's nature there too. And you can daily and take your time and just watch, look at the leaves, especially if you go regularly. Watch, note the change. Note the little things. Um, again, notice God's there. Uh, he's there all the time. You don't always notice him. But I think that would be, you know, again, get out and walk. So, and there are so many hikes. You know, if you're well, the state of, throughout the state of Washington, our listening yeah. area, Carrie, my wife, what she would say is walk to a waterfall. Mm. Waterfalls for her are so evocative of God's beauty, God's power. Uh, the, the, the like immensity of all things that, that just something very powerful about waterfalls so there you go there's Carrie alright we are up against the end of the program Father Nagel Father Lewis thank you so much for being with me today and join me tomorrow for more Sound Insights